Revelation 21, chapter, or chapter 21, uh, verse 9. Revelation 21, verse 9. Very, very, very close to the end of your Bible. Several people have asked me uh, when we're finishing Revelation. You guys are ready. That's good. Uh, we, will, we will spend today in the last vision of the new heavens and new earth. And then we will spend next Sunday finishing up the book with chapter 22, verses 6 to 21, so you guys know. Um, so we're going to start in chapter 21, verse 9. Before we start, uh, let's just observe that um, showing off is almost always bad, um, unless you are showing off someone else. Um, think of me holding Benjamin like Lion King style before you guys, you know, or um, celebrating uh, a friend of yours. Um, well, here in this final vision of Revelation, we see this first verse, uh, verse 9. One of the seven angels comes and says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And this entire passage uh, basically shows off God's people. God is showing off uh, his perfected, glorious people. Uh, the previous chapter said he has made all things new, and now we're going to see God's people new, living in a renewed creation. Um, so if you uh, are maybe afraid you or the church will always be dysfunctional, or if you've wondered if heaven will really be all that exciting, uh, let's see this future God has for his people. Uh, one thing, uh, as we read this passage, uh, we're going to see something uh, a little unique in Revelation. We're going to see lots of architectural details. Uh, we're going to see measurements. We're going to see materials, all those things. And just know that uh, through the ages, God's people have always been building buildings. Uh, they've always been constructing things and having cities, especially in the Old Testament. And so just know that these uh, the architectural details here uh, probably display real places. We'll see that. Uh, but primarily, they are symbolizing... Uh, truths about what it will be like to live in the new creation. So let's hear the scriptures. We're going to read uh, chapter 21, verse 9, all the way to chapter 22, verse 5. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured, measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. 
The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gate will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as you say many times in this book, these words are trustworthy and true. That what we read of is not a myth or a dream or even a a hope. It It is a reality that... You are going to bring your people here, surely. And so I pray, um, as we try to open up this passage and understand it, that you would bring your wisdom and that you would bring hope. Um, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I became aware that this was not going to be a regular children's book when people were getting murdered in chapter 2. Um, I'm a big fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, as you guys probably know, and uh, normally, uh, there's seven of them, normally uh, the Chronicles of Narnia have a pretty pretty standard structure. There are some children, uh, they end up somehow through magic in Narnia, they have some adventures, conflict kind of slowly builds throughout the book, uh, Aslan, who represents Jesus, appears, and things typically go really well. Uh, the last battle... This seventh chronicle of Narnia is entirely different. There is no Aslan anywhere. In fact, there's a false Aslan. The bad guys are winning. The good guys are dying. Uh, In fact, the first time I read this book, I almost quit like four times. Uh, It was heartrending. And uh, towards the end of the book, uh, all the good guys are in a battle, the last battle. They have their backs against the wall of a demon-infested stable. And their enemies, uh, instead of killing them, are finding a lot of fun by slowly but surely forcing 
them into this demon-infested stable. It's kind of this horrible chapter where uh, the characters just notice their friends slowly but surely uh, being forced in. But uh, the door slams behind them, and they do not find themselves in the stable. They actually find themselves in this wonderful land full of beauty. And uh, they, they learn eventually this is Aslan's country, which is the Narnia version of the new heavens and new earth. And they're soon flying around, meeting old friends, enjoying all the wonder of this creation. And at the very end of the book, um, Aslan begins to speak. And here's how Lewis uh, closes this beloved series that I would recommend to you. Here's what he says. And as he, Aslan, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only ever been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And as we've walked through the book of Revelation, and as we walk through life, we find ourselves very often in those first chapters of the last battle. Heart-rending things happen. Good guys die. God seems to be nowhere to be found. But Revelation 21 and part of 22 reveals that all of that stuff leads here to chapter 1 of the great story, which goes on forever and which every chapter is better than the one before. And this vision is given to us and given to these seven churches in the Roman Empire struggling and wrestling so that if obeying Jesus today cost us terribly. If it looks like having your back against the wall, we will endure. If it means leaving the comfortable and entering the unknown, that we will do so. So let's come and see the bride of the Lamb in her perfection and restoration and see that if we endure with Christ, we'll have those things forever. Verses 9 to 21 are a picture of the bride's perfection. Um, there are lots of details here that we'll try to dive in, but everything here, the main, uh, the main theme of these verses, 9 to 21, is that the bride, God's people, are perfect. They are dwelling in a perfect place. First, notice the perfection of God's glory in her. Notice verse 10, the very end, shows the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Uh, the glory of God is his, his weight, his immensity, um, this light and brightness that radiates from him. And here in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, God's people have that glory. They are full of the presence of God, so they radiate with beauty. God's bride is beautiful. 
Second, uh, see the perfection of her completion and diversity. Uh, verses 12 to 14 give us this picture um, of completion and diversity. Notice that uh, there's this repetition of the, of the number 12. Um, the city has 12 gates with 12 angels. There's 12 tribes of Israel there. Um, the wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Um, earlier in the book of Revelation, you guys might remember this, Revelation 7, that kind of tricky passage where all of a sudden God's people are revealed, and there's 12,000 from each tribe of Judah, or from each tribe of Israel. And it's kind of confusing, but we talked about in that passage how 12 is this number that represents completeness. It means everybody's there. And notice how in verses 12 to 14, you've got 12 angels, you've got 12 tribes of Israel, and you've got the 12 apostles, which represent the church. So literally, every single kind of being in the universe that is rightly related to God, from the angelic host to the Old Testament people of God to the New Testament people of God, they're all there. Nobody whom God has chosen misses out. And notice also... They are wonderfully diverse. There's not a one homogeneous expression of worship in heaven. There's Jewishness in heaven. There's diversity in heaven. There's angelic worship in heaven. Um, God's glory is manifold, and his church in the coming age will be diverse, and its diversity will be beautiful. Um, I think it's glorious that one day the church will have diversity without divisions, right? We'll have uh, this manifold glory without denominations that disagree. Um, we won't have experiences where we walk into church and their worship style is so foreign to us that we can't understand. No, we'll appreciate the beauty. There will be a perfect union of diversity. So first, God's bride has the perfection of God's glory. Second, she has the perfection of complete diversity. Third, she has perfect measurements. This is probably the hardest section of this passage, verses 15 to 21. Uh, this, this passage references probably the end of the book of Ezekiel, where you have these four or five chapters where he measures the temple. Uh, but just notice, uh, everything about this description of the new city displays its perfection, it's her symmetry. Notice verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. There's this symmetry to it. If you're designing it, it looks really good. Uh, and notice the city's also huge. Uh, the angel measures the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. If you look in your Bible, there's probably a little number next to stadia. And at the very bottom, it gives you the estimated reference. So it's 1,380 miles. So notice that its length is 1,380 miles, but its width and height are also 1,380 miles. Uh, if, you, uh, if, you, if you multiply all that together, that is 3 billion uh, cubic miles. So there is space. Um, just to, uh, to give you a comparison, the uh, surface area of the Earth that human beings can inhabit is about 40 or 57 million miles. This new city will be huge. But uh, more than that, I think more than just the size, the idea here is perfection. This number 12,000 appears again. 
12 is this number of completion. 1,000 is this number of perfection. 12,000, and the city is 12,000 times 12,000 times 12,000. The idea is very clear. There could not be a more perfectly shaped place. It is exactly what God's people need. Again, we see um, in verses 18 to 21 that the beauty of the city is quite diverse. Um, you might wonder why there are all these jewels and why there's all these descriptions of precious things. Um, I think the idea is that each, each kind of jewel has a particular kind of beauty. Like some people, I'm not really into jewelry myself, but some people are into, diff- like some people are like, man, I want an emerald or a sapphire or a diamond. Like they look different. They're not all the same, but they're all beautiful. And I think, I think these, uh, all these um, jewels are listed here to give the idea that there is a resplendent or multifaceted or variegated beauty in heaven. There's not just one way God wants things to look. There's this glorious diversity. Notice particularly the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Um, why is that there? Pearls were the most precious um, jewel in the ancient world. It was the most sought after. People would spend all their money on pearls. So the, I think the idea is that, that these gates, uh, that this place where God's people will be, it is utterly precious. Um, you know, the streets are made of gold. You guys have all heard that since you were little kids. But again, gold was the most sought after material. And so this idea is that heaven is perfect and it's precious. So uh, this little first section, uh, in all sorts of ways, lots of pictures, uh, we see that the bride, God's people, the wife of the lamb, they are in perfect glory. They are perfect, utterly perfect, and they inhabit a perfect place. And I think this uh, can meet our lives now, but it's certainly hope for the future, but it can meet our lives now. All of us, deep down somewhere, are longing for perfection. Some of us really long to be perfect. We struggle uh, to admit our imperfections. We, some of you guys in here have experienced where you sin and you blow it, and there's this existential crisis, because this whole time you've been holding on to this idea that you were fine, that you were righteous. You're longing for perfection. Some of you, maybe more so, are longing to be surrounded by perfection. You look at others and all the ways they failed you, or you look at your local church or your nation, perhaps, and there's this frustration. And I think this passage helps us in that your longings for perfection will be met in the new creation. You will have what you seek if you endure with Christ. There will be a day when you will be perfect and worthy. There will be a day when the people around you will no longer disappoint you, when your nation, your habitation will be glorious and good. And I, th- I, think, I think God has shown us this vision of the future to free us. I'm going to say this several times in this lesson. This is the main thing I want, I, want, I want you to take away from this. But God has given us this vision of a perfect future to free us from seeking that now. I think um, a lot of our problems, a lot of our distractions, a lot of our hurts, 
They come from seeking and desiring this place here on earth. We're trying to build a perfect kingdom here and now. Your expectations on other people, um, your unwillingness to hear hard feedback about yourself, um, your dissatisfaction. I, uh, I was reading this verse uh, in Psalm 119. It says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And I, I was thinking about this. Me and Sarah went on a little uh, trip this weekend, and uh, it was wonderful. It was great. We were in downtown Charleston. But we're just sitting there kind of just the whole two days just enjoying, like, every conceivable good thing. And yet, you guys have been there. There's a limit. Nothing ever really satisfies. And I think this vision is meant to help free us from needing that or seeking that now to say it is coming. I can give myself to something else. So uh, first we've seen God's bride perfected. Um, That is a part of the prize of heaven. Um, But John Piper said very, very well that heaven's not going to be a place of mirrors. Um, We're not going to primarily in heaven just enjoy uh, how perfect we are. Um, Heaven will be much more than that because next we see God's people are not just perfected. They are restored. They are restored to God's tangible presence and to everything he he intended at creation. We'll see this uh, laid out in two images. First, we'll see a new temple. And second, we will see a new river and a new tree. So first, uh, look at verse uh, chapter 21, verse 22. Uh, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Now, God has basically been building a temple from the beginning of time. In the book of Genesis, he, he created the garden, this uh, place where his presence could dwell. Adam and Eve lost that through sin. Then the rest of the story of the Old Testament is God's continually building this place where he can dwell among his people, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple. Again and again, their sin destroys that. And Jesus comes as the new temple, and he sends his spirit to us, makes us the temple. But even now, uh, our experience of God's presence is one primarily of faith. We don't see Um, But here in the new creation, God will tangibly, visibly dwell with his people. The nearest you've ever been to Jesus, the most powerfully you have been affected in worship, it's just a a whisper, just a, a, a tiny whiff of what heaven will be like. God himself will be there. His face, you will, you will see his face, as verse 4 says. What is utterly impossible now, he will have forever. Um, and I think it's helpful uh, to just remind ourselves again that even though we may not see this in our lives because of sin, what we really long for is the face of God. Our longings for adventure and thrill and Rapture and pleasure are ultimately longings for God. And he himself, God will restore us to himself. Uh, John goes on. 
the city, I think this is related to the temple, verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Again, it's not just they don't need a temple. They don't need, they don't need the sun. The sun is the center of life in our, in our solar system, right? If the sun did not exist, there would be no life on this planet. It, it keeps us from freezing to death. It, all the plants grow because of the sun. Everything is related to the sun. Um, and uh, no, notice, uh, notice the light here. Um, I don't think living in an age with electricity, we really appreciate light. Um, I've appreciated light recently because for some reason, my daughter has been waking up in the middle of the night screaming because it's dark in her room. And so, like, I think kids get instinctively what we don't, that the dark, darkness is scary, that uh, maybe you guys have experienced that walking around in the dark. But anyways, uh, people in the ancient world who didn't really have electricity would have gotten this. Darkness is where scary things happen. And uh, here in this new city with God's presence, there is no need of the sun or moon or any light because God's presence is all of those things. Notice also in verses 24 to 25, the nations uh, bring their glory into this new kingdom. Um, I think what's going on here is we see the fulfillment of a lot of prophecies in the scriptures. Uh, just hear this from Isaiah 2. Um, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Notice here the, uh, the kings of the earth, the ones throughout this entire book have been God's enemies, right? They are bringing the wealth and honor of the nations into the new creation. But there's just been this radical change that the nations who have always opposed God have always been his enemies in the new creation that people that God has purchased from every tongue, tribe, and nation, they are now bringing all of the wealth and glory, all of the good things from every human culture, all the diversity, they are bringing it into the kingdom. The main point, though, is that God will be with his people. His presence will shelter them and protect them. Notice also verse 27. I think this is a wonderful promise. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This could be a warning, like all the other warnings in the book of Revelation, but I, th I, think, I think more than that, it's a promise. There will no longer be evildoers. There will no longer be temptations. There will no longer be personal struggles with sin. God's presence will free you from that. As John says in 1 John, uh, when, when we see him, we will be like him, free from sin. So first, the temple's restored. God's presence is restored. Second, the garden is restored. Everything in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, shows us a picture of Eden restored. Um, notice a few things here with me just broadly. First in verse 1, chapter 22, verse 1, there's a river of the water of life. Um, verse 2, there's on either side of the river, there is the tree of life, not a tree of life, but the tree of life. Um, verse 3, there's no longer anything accursed. 
in verse, uh, verse 5, the very end, God's people will reign forever. Each of those things points us all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3. God, uh, God created Eden. He put the tree of life there with a river flowing out of it, this place where, where his people could dwell with him and live forever. Um, he, he charged them, like as we all know, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth so that they could have dominion and subdue the earth. He charged them to reign over the earth, to exercise authority with him. And uh, then Adam and Eve sinned, and God cursed creation. And here we see every little bit of Eden restored. I think there's all sorts of ways we could talk about applying this to life, but just a few. Um, there's this water of life. I think if you want to get an image of this, if you want to feel this image, this might be a little bit dangerous, okay? But just get really dehydrated. Get really dehydrated. Not dangerously, you know. You know, I don't know. Go sit in a sauna for two hours. Not that, not that long. But, you know, get really, don't drink water for like 10 hours, okay? You'll start, and you'll start to feel it. Like, we drink a lot of stuff. You'll start to feel it. But, um, and after you've gotten really dehydrated, just get a really cold, 16 ounce glass of water and start to drink it and you'll experience like you'll actually feel better by drinking water i know that might sound impossible to you where you are now right you actually water will refresh you and i think i think the idea of this uh river of life and the trees with its 12 kinds of fruit with healing for the nation is, is there's this there's this restoration that goes on in the new creation that you are continually forever refreshed restored given life those rare good nights of sleep where you wake up feeling amazing, those few times in your life where you're genuinely, emotionally, physically, spiritually refreshed, those are all little previews of the experience of heaven. Notice, uh, there's also no more curse. There's no more, there's nothing left to hinder you. Um, just this past week, I learned something new about particularly about computers and that is that my computer with its windows operating system has this terrible flaw and here's the flaw all right and i just want to i want to warn everyone in here who, who appreciates their data and who like me has never backed up their data but if you uh if you're open in windows explorer if you're viewing your files and you press Control z it will delete everything forever and uh, you'll never get it back and that happened to me this week i actually deleted uh the entire series of Revelation, including this lesson, in one, one fell swoop. Anyways, it was, it was rough. It was a bad day. But I was talking to one of my coworkers about this, and she, and she was just like, I thought we were beyond the days of catastrophic losses like that. And I think it's important to remember that in this present life, we are never beyond the days of catastrophic losses. Your health, your work, your friendships, they just hang by a little string. You know, data is nothing compared to what you can lose in a moment. And in this new creation, you will be forever beyond loss, forever beyond hindrance. Notice this last little phrase that closes the vision. They will reign forever and ever. Um, God's people are not just, sometimes I think when we talk about heaven, we talk primarily in a way that makes it seem like we're going to be sitting back and watching something or kind of like 
that heaven is, it is a place of rest, but like heaven's a place without a lot of activity. And uh, this verse right here tells us that heaven is a place of great activity. They're gonna, the saints are going to reign with Christ. They're going to be active. God's going to assign you roles that are perfectly suited to you. You're going to be doing things forever. This is why C.S. Lewis can really say that, uh, that your first day in heaven will begin chapter one of the best book ever written where every chapter gets better. You will have activity in heaven. You'll be doing things there. You're going to rule the universe. I think, uh, I think what I, one thing that comes out of this passage is that in heaven there is this blend of things we never have on earth. There's this blend of both adventure and security. So I like to say that we love, uh, we all love, typically most of us love, exciting books and movies, but no one really wants their life to be like that, right? Like, you don't want your life to be an action movie. Like, you don't want people knocking your doors down with guns. Like, no one really wants that. Like, you would need counseling after that. Uh, but we love watching them. We, 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 uh, we want to skydive, but we want to make sure we're safe, right? Um, and in the new creation, there will be this blend of adventure without adversity, there will be safe skydiving. There will be thrill without fear. Everything we love um, about adventure, new things, with none of the fear, all of the comfort. And uh, the, it's this blend that's just unattainable in this life that we will have forever. And um, my daughter's nanny has this little funny quote at the entrance of her house that says, the key to happiness is low expectations, and then it, it, there's like, no, but seriously, lower. Like, you know, like, anyway, it's just like, look, keep lowering as you walk in. Like, I think that's, I think that's great. Um, that's a pretty common saying um, with a lot of truth in it, and I, I think um, this passage helps us see that we were born for heaven, and because we're born for heaven, we wake up each morning with a thousand unfulfillable desires. We wake up wanting fun and thrill and adventure and comfort and security and ease. And I think this vision helps us to say again, I do not have to have these things now. I don't have to arrange my life around fun and comfort and ease. I can, in fact, give myself to the uncomfortable, to the dangerous, to the things that cause me fear, because Jesus has these things in store for me. Um, I'll just try to be clear. I, I think um, if you are like me, an American who has gro grown up with some degree of prosperity and comfort, who thinks that if someone's mad at you, it's your fault, that's your, uh, that's your uh, go-to, uh, typically two of the things that are probably most hindering your life with Jesus is this fear of being outside of your comfort zone, of this fear of the unknown. Uh, like last week, uh, if, you were, uh, if you heard Dr. Lawless preach, and he was talking about one of his main applications was, maybe you need to pray, Lord, is it time for me to pack my bags and go to the nations? And you start imagining that, and it terrifies you. You say, I'm just not going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to turn the TV on until I don't think about that anymore. I don't want to go to the nations. It's too scary. Um, if that's you, you, you fear losing your comfort. And I think, I think on the other side of that is we just want to pursue our pleasures. We have a, we have a really fun city to live in. We've got 
literally millions of hours of entertainment at our fingertips. And I think, again, this, this glorious vision of heaven is meant to free us from those things. It's meant to free us from having to have a safe and comfortable life now. It's meant to free us to obedience that's uncomfortable. Maybe it's uncomfortable just in starting a conversation with someone that's hard. Maybe that's where you start. Maybe, maybe you don't pack your bags and go to the nations. Maybe you do. But, but, but heaven frees us from having to have safety and security now. And it also frees us from having to have lots of fun now. You don't need to travel the world. You are going to inherit the universe. You can explore it forever. You don't need to have two sleep-in days a week to feel refreshed. You will rest and be refreshed forever. You can spend your life because everything you want is coming. Um, There's one more thing in this passage. Um, We see God's people having personal perfection and complete restoration. But there's one more thing that kind of pops up in this passage that we haven't seen uh, a lot in the book, and it is this figure called the Lamb. Now, the Lamb's been in Revelation. He appeared in Revelation 5, Jesus Christ uh, crucified, and he's appeared a few times throughout the book. But all of a sudden, he is all over the place in the new creation. He appears seven different times in this passage. Uh, Chapter 21, verse 10, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 14, the the city has 12 foundations, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The temple is of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Its lamp is the Lamb, the Lamb's book of life, the throne of God and the Lamb. And there's a question I just want, want you to think about. Why in a place that no longer has any sin, in a place full of people who are now freed from sin and no longer need forgiveness. Why does Jesus appear as a lamb? Why does he appear as a bloody, sacrificial animal in a place with no more need for sacrifice? I think, uh, I think what John is going after here might be, I think there might be a couple things. And first, I think he just wants to remind us that heaven only comes one way. Through God's Son killed. That paradise comes through sacrifice. That heaven is available to you because hell was poured out on Jesus. There, as we look at this picture of this future that's so bright, I think John wants us to look back at that darkest moment in history when Jesus hung forsaken by God. He wants us to see this is what Jesus bought with his blood. It's what he bought for you, not just for restoration and forgiveness in this life. Yes, that's certainly there. But Jesus has won this. He's purchased this. He's made this possible by his blood. I think we also see here that, that in heaven, as we come to Jesus and receive this, that Um, It is going to be Jesus the Lamb, not Jesus the Conqueror on the white horse or Jesus the Creator, but Jesus the Lamb, whom we will spend eternity dwelling with and gazing on. I think the cross of Jesus is going to be the center of the joy of heaven. I think as we we reign, as we enjoy perfection, as as we do all the things that people are going to do, we're all going to do them with all of our joy and sight. 
in this infinite, beautiful work of Christ. We will never get over it. And this morning, you have the opportunity to get a taste of that by worshiping him. All right, so as we wrap up this last vision in Revelation, we will finish the book next week, but as we wrap up this final vision of Revelation, um, I'll just say if there's anything I've learned about human nature, it's that people love prizes. People love prizes. Uh, If I uh, told my daughter you had better pick up your room or else, I might get a tantrum. She's not going to be motivated. But if I say I will give you ice cream, that thing is done in like three minutes. Uh, But just just for you guys, okay, I bet if I uh, gave a March scripture memory challenge, if I just spent the next four weeks encouraging you guys to memorize Psalm 119, which is 170 verses, in the month of March, all right, and I just, I just, you know, guilted you into it. I just pulled everything out, okay? Um, I'd probably get a few takers. Um, I'd probably get some effort. Um, but I doubt I'd get 100% participation, and I doubt I would get a lot of Psalm 119 memorized. But if I said, hey, y'all, I will give you $1,000 for every verse out of Psalm 119 that you memorize in the next month, and if you get the whole thing, I will give you a million dollars. And you knew that I wasn't lying and uh, that I would actually do it. I think every person in this room would go after it. I think some of you would quit your jobs because $1,000 per verse, $1,000 per verse. That sets you up for like three or four years, you know? Um, People love prizes. They motivate. Um, Guilt might motivate you for a little bit. Um, This idea that we should do something might motivate you. But a prize, that will radically change your life. This passage gives us a prize. An inch of heaven is more precious than a thousand kingdoms on earth. This passage demonstrates to us that, that what is coming before us, what we have if we endure with Christ, it is utterly precious. And it's worth whatever it cost us. Revelation again and again has said we must conquer. We must lay our lives down. We must endure with Jesus. If we personally are going to be saved, we need to adjust our lives today. And the beauty of this, of this final vision is it doesn't just uh, tell us we need to do that. It gives us the ability to do that. It enables our obedience by giving us motivation. It shows us. It it gives us a picture of the prize before us. So see it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you. Uh, Lord, I I just thank you that it's so hard to describe heaven, that uh, its realities are so precious and beyond us and so beautiful that, that words just don't, don't come close. Thanks for that. I pray that you would uh, give us a taste today. I pray you would motivate us and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen.